Cheers, everyone, and welcome to Iterator. My name is Richard Ferreira, and I'm here with Shari Lati. And today we're going to talk about how an investor um, evaluates early stage ventures. How are you doing, Shari? I'm doing pretty good, Richard. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. What have you got on your mind today? Yeah, so evaluating startups. So I worked in private equity prior, mm -hmm. and I have experience with venture capital as well. Uh, even though the stages are very different, the underlying thesis or underlying process to wet startups before you even go for further due diligence, it's more or less the same uh, with a few tweaks uh, in the private equity space because they have the luxury of data, whereas early stage venture capital, they don't. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things to cover. So I guess we can dive right into it. Sounds good. Okay. So when we look at early stage startups as an investor, uh, there's like a lot of things we look at, but the primary uh, buckets we can put in, put the criteria in is like A, the team, the technology, the traction, the market, financing, competition, exit, and valuation. Because as an investor, you care about how much money you're going to get once you are done investing and you invested in the company for like five years or seven years, depending on the fund uh, lifetime. So yeah, I, I guess uh, we can start with the teams. So Richard, since you've worked in uh, a venture builder as well, what's your take on the teams? Like when you look at a startup team, uh, if you were an investor or since you uh, also look at like venture destroying activities, so when you look at the team, what are the things or the red flags or the green flags you look at? Yeah, I think that in terms of teams, um something that I found is very beneficial is just knowing that they've been put through the pace. So if they've had experience in the space, um, if they've done something similar before, if they've got some unique um, insight into that field, that's great. And also it does help if they, if it's not their first rodeo together. I mean, um, for two founders that just met and they want to start a venture, I'm not saying it can't work, but it's much more reassuring uh, uh, and easier to see that they've known each other beforehand. They already developed um, a good working relationship. It inspires more confidence in me when I see that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty similar. Like my list would be similar as well. Like uh, also another thing I'd add in is the dedication. Are they doing this full-time or part-time? Because mm -hmm. uh, circling back to the first uh, episode with Margaret, uh, we discussed like uh, lifestyle entrepreneur versus hardcore entrepreneurs. Uh, because as an investor, you want to invest in a team, especially in early stage, you're literally investing in the people more than the idea. So mm -hmm. you need to know their dedication and what are the qualifications? Uh, do they have previous exposure? Uh, are they living the problem uh, they're solving? Or did they live mm -hmm. it in the past jobs? Uh, mm -hmm. did, you know, and strong collaboration. How's the team dynamics? Like, as you just mentioned, like even if two people uh, met in the same space and they've faced similar set of problems, it can actually work out better than people you've known from the past because you can be biased in terms of the quality, uh, the qualities or qualifications of the team. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess that's that's a pretty comprehensive uh, bucket for team. Uh, I think next mm -hmm. we can move on to is the technology. So uh, I, I'll probably take the lead for this one. Uh, especially in early stages, there's like a few sectors or industries where uh, intellectual properties or uh, rights or ownerships of specific technology matters a lot. That's especially in the health tech space, uh, you have to go through FDA approval. You need to have patents in order. 
mm-hmm. but sometimes, uh, especially in the SaaS space uh, models or like more consumer focused uh, products, it's more about differentiation rather than the IP. How is their service or how is the technology different from the existing solutions? Is there mm-hmm. a product market fit? Uh, does it even exist? Uh, in some cases, product market fit simply doesn't exist in a particular niche market. Or, and uh, there's an interesting term in my fund. We say, is it a vitamin or is it a painkiller? A vitamin is a nice to have. Painkiller means it, it, it solves a problem that multiple people are facing and they need and they will be willing to pay the money to get the problem solved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So finding like a deep enough pain that people are going to be scrambling to kind of like get their hands on the product or that service. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, what would be your take on it? It's quite interesting that you mentioned different industries as well. Um, I pretty much agree naturally. I know that in terms of um, specific technologies, um, when I did a short stint at a medical devices uh, startup, I noticed that the solution that they were developing, it was specific for the African market. Um, it had unique applications. It was different from other things being done in the market. And uh, it was quite, quite, quite particular, it's quite incisive. And um, looking at that from um, an outsider's point of view now, I do see that there's definitely value in that. There weren't an also ran kind of situation and they were competing with big companies such as, um, well, the names escape me, but it, it's in terms of artificial heart valves. And you look at kind of like the, the technologies used to create them, uh, the delivery method and all of that. And you could see that they had something special going on there. Um, and that's in sharp contrast to other areas in which, let's say, for example, if someone is making, um, well, most people are making an app nowadays, um, for better or for worse. Hmm. But underlying that, um, there needs to be a solid business model in which they tackle a proper pain point, realistic one. So I agree for sure. Hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, and moving on to the next section with, I think, markets. So markets, uh, especially in the early stage VC space, uh, investors are more comfortable if they see that the total addressable market is around $1 billion. Uh, that, that is like the set standard because, uh, you know, investors want returns. And if they see that the total addressable market is big enough, they are comfortable that they can, you know, uh, obtain at least like one or five percent or even ten percent of the entire market and get decent returns especially at the early stages you're talking about pre pre uh, revenue or even sometimes uh, bootstrapped startups who have decent amount of uh, you know revenue or financials so you you need to have like at least one billion dollars in the, the total addressable market uh, and also not just the market size but how fast is the market growing because with with upcoming trends or income trends, Sometimes there are a few markets that were stagnant for the past five, six years, and then suddenly there's a breakthrough in the tech and there's a huge demand, uh, a huge problem has been solved by a company uh, in, in terms of the solutions, and then people can apply those solutions in the startup context and make more money out of it. So how fast is the market growing? And also the customers within the market, like who are they? Like uh, has the entrepreneur or the startup figured out who is their target customer? Because that's pretty important when it comes to marketing or even developing the product itself. Like, are, are we addressing tech-savvy customers? Are we t- uh, talking about people who are not really interested in what's going behind the curtains and they just want a solution? Uh, how much autonomy they want in the product, etc. Sure, I definitely agree. When you mentioned the, the growth of markets, it actually reminds me of the acceleration that we had now because of the coronavirus. Because... 
if we're looking at everything now uh, uh, back then, you'd see some sectors, you know, kind of like decreasing or slowing down, say tra travel and hospitality. But others, um, like let's say, for example, technolo technology companies, um, food delivery services and all of that, just increasingly uh, uh, growing just because of the, of the nature of people staying more, more at home. So um, it's, it's thinking about that and knowing that um, those trends are essentially an acceleration and not just a blip that's going to come back down to pre-pandemic levels, but something that's going to change in terms of our behavior and plotting that out. I think it would be super useful for investors to know kind of like how those macro effects um, can, can affect change in those industries. Absolutely. I mean, investors are always abreast with what's happening in the space or in terms of what, what's in demand, what's not in demand anymore, because uh, essentially the it's these trends that runs the entire market and the valuation, right? Ultimately, it's uh, the demand and how much are people willing to pay for a certain solution or product that uh, drives the valuation ultimately. And um, going uh, beautifully tying to that would be our next bucket, Traction. Uh, traction, what is the progress of the startup up to, uh, to date, right? Uh, are we talking about a bootstrapped uh, startup that has re like a 500, 600,000 uh, USD revenue? Uh, it can also be a literal startup idea that a person came up with a month ago. They've been validating it and people are saying that, you know, sign me up for the beta. I'm willing to pay. What is the nature of the contracts or what are the, what, what would be the potential recurring revenue and what is the stage the startup is in? Because as I said, it can be bootstrap, it can be uh, just an in, in the ideation phase, it can be uh, pre-revenue, it can be post-revenue. Uh, so there's a lot of factors in the traction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. And now that you mentioned kind of like the different measures that people use to kind of keep track of traction, it makes me think of evidence strength again. I feel like so many roads come back to that. So for example, what people do is much more, uh, uh, it weighs much more heavily into what people say. Um, so if I say, yes, I would definitely use that product. I've um, heard that quite a few times and it doesn't always pan out uh, for one reason or another. Hmm. I like to think that people are just busy. Um, but you, can, you have a whole spectrum of things in terms of someone says that they'll use it or they say, okay, I will sign up to, to use it when it's available. So they drop in an email. That's a little bit more, that's actually an action. So it's a little bit more valuable. And all the way down to people actually paying for it without seeing it. Um, that is a very strong signal. It means that their pain is so intense um, that the painkiller that they're hoping to use, even if they don't fully uh, uh, grasp it because they know, presumably they'll, they'll know what kind of features it will have, but they haven't used it yet. They don't fully grasp it. Um, they, they, they're willing to put down money to kind of see that through. Uh, so I definitely agree there in terms of traction. Yeah. So something you just said, it remind, remind me of uh, a thing my professor of sales uh, told us. The, uh, in, in sales, there's three responses you can get. A yes, no, and a maybe. And maybe is the worst response someone can get. Uh, because yes means you've closed the deal. No means you've closed the deal, but not in a favorable way. But maybe means there's a lingering thought that, uh, oh, this can be a lead, this cannot be a lead. And no matter how much time you put in, uh, there's uncertainty in the output. And yeah, as you said, uh, if, if the problem or the pain is big enough that people are willing to pay or sign up for the service, I think, yeah, that, that shows that that's market validation in itself. Like if sufficient amount of people are ready to pay for it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, coming to market validation, uh, another factor that many startups overlook or try to undersell to investors 
which I've personally seen from a lot of decks is competitions. So uh, again, I've seen uh, numerous startups in their pitch decks mention, oh, we're the first startup in the space, which is not the case usually. Usually that's not the case. And uh, then, uh, and then they, they come up with, uh, uh, you know, when, when I confront them or any other investor or people in my team, they confront them uh, with uh, that, like, there's a similar startup like yours, then say, oh, they're different from us. So another factor uh, is, is the differentiation, like how different is the competitor? Uh, what criteria the startup is using to discard them or include them as a competitor in the same space? Uh, what are the comparable offerings for the same? And what are the current, you know, uh, substitutes for your startup idea? Uh, is there mm -hmm. like a Microsoft or a Google service, uh, which is already doing the thing you're doing, but people don't know about it anyways. Mm -hmm. So those kind of things. And then uh, threat, even like who are the players? Mm -hmm. Who are the major threats in the space? So is it a red ocean? Is it a blue ocean? You know, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of a thing. So Definitely. Um, now, you mentioned um, being the only startup doing something. <laughs> I find that interesting because it's exactly as you said. Um, usually, many people have, they converge onto similar problems and they try to hack their way at them. Um, I mean, for example, and <laughs> looking back at the, the previous tech wars of old is always an interesting thing. First of all, because you, never you almost never recognize the names, right? Because tech moves just so fast. But when I think about Google, uh, Google was not the first search engine. Not by a mile. Um, I actually don't know the actual number. Were they ninth or 27th or something like that? They, they had quite a few before. And yet they still managed to eat AltaVista's lunch. I think AltaVista was the leading one at the time. Um, of course, the reasons for that we could dive into afterwards. But long story short, I think that they were very well positioned in terms of their technology and the team. Um, when I think of an investor um, evaluating a startup in that sense, the main thing that comes to mind is if they think, okay, I'm looking at this team right now, do they have what it takes to be the winning team? Because if I invest in them, it, it precludes me from investing in everyone else. Mm -hmm. I am betting on them and consciously choosing to not bet on all of the other teams. And that's what comes to mind in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, personal opinion, but I think that uh, first mover advantage can be disadvantageous for, for many situations and many industries. Mm -hmm especially in the tech space, because let's say a company comes up with a brilliant idea, they get traction, they get a lot of uh, buzz around them. Uh, there are, there's time for competitors to analyze what they're doing right and wrong and see what's like the most common complaints or complaints. Uh, look at the feedback that people are providing it on online because everything's happening online now, right? Uh, and people basically suggesting features or requesting a lot of features uh, if your rivals beat you to it, come up with a better user interface, with a better user experience, with better servers, you can literally capture the market even though you're like the fourth or fifth entrant in the space just because you're better than everyone else. So uh, again, it's it's about iterations. Of, of exactly. So <laughs> yeah. And a final note on that as well is that when I, when I, when I tend to see news like that, so let's say for example, entrant number one, is on the news because they've got this spanking new uh, product. Usually what you see on the news is two or three steps behind of what they're actually working on. And so for new entrants in the market, you'd presume that they're also behind, right? But a very, very pernicious issue can arise when all of that, uh, um, all of that publicity 
can actually bog down entrant num number one, because now they're getting a lot of requests, let's say, for example, and they're dealing with scalability issues. And they're getting so much feedback um, driven because of that marketing now that they're trying to, to, to address all of that without a singular focus in terms of vision and incorporating that. And so that could actually mean that their own progress slows down. And if the competitors are hungry enough, uh, and usually they are, that's when issues can, can uh, start to appear in terms of their prospects. Yeah, I agree. Oh yeah, true, true that. So uh, moving on to the next aspect would be financing. Like how much the team wants uh, at what valuation? Because uh, let's be frank, uh, valuations have been out of whack for the past few years. Uh, because there's way too much money in the VC space. Uh, there's more money than more startups right now, realistically speaking, and uh, and venture capital firms, they want to deploy the money. So they will, they are willing to inflate the valuations. Uh, so the entrepreneurs should be aware of what the like similar startups or in similar stages are getting. And what is the use of funds? Like, uh, what are you going to use the money for? Because that's a prime slide for me, especially in a slide deck, because that shows that how well thought their entire roadmap is and how much uh, they're planning on you know, deploying capital for marketing versus developing technologies, et cetera. It just shows that uh, is, is the entrepreneur or the startup mature enough to receive funding and use it responsibly. Mm -hmm. I agree. I know that in terms of... Uh... Evaluations. I like to think of it as a uh, <clears throat> when you think of a supply and a demand kind of dynamic. Um, of course, it's up to the viewer's interpretation of who is a supplier and who is uh, providing the demand in, in terms of startups and venture capital. But there's definitely a surplus of money floating around due to a combination of many, many um, <clears throat> effects. Like, for example, low interest rates, um, just a, a keen interest from institutional investors kind of take a little bit more. Uh, uh, risk in terms of their portfolio, just allotting a little bit more to the venture capital pie, whatever it might be. If there's a surplus of money, it means that that money is trying to find a home. And so it's much simpler for, for uh, founders to get funding, even though it's no, no easy task, definitely not saying that. But um, I also heard that uh, raising capital is one of the easiest things that a founder can do. And if it's already difficult, then you can benchmark for the other things. But when, that, um, when the situation turns, perhaps, then uh, uh, the balance of power kind of shifts to the investors again. Um, and also, I think it's another conversation on whether that's going to be happening anytime soon. I'm pretty sure that we could speculate, but predicting the future is hard, so I hear. But um, yeah, those are my thoughts on that. No, absolutely agree with you. And, and yeah, I guess uh, um, we can move on to the next one. That's like exit and the valuation returns. So uh, exit. So while speaking with founders, we especially in early stage, we want to know uh, what, what options they've considered for an exit that can be an IPO, an acquisition, it can be like a secondary investment. And, and we can, you know, understand uh, what would be like the potential acquirer for, for the startup. Like that shows that the company has done its market research. Uh, they know who their competitors are or collaborators are, uh, which of their major clients can acquire them potentially if they're benefiting so much. Uh, it shows maturity again and 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 also knowledge of the entire space uh, as to how well uh, structured the management is into and how open they are to such such an exit because there's like uh, if if there's like a rebellion or there's uh, uh, opposition within the team for for a particular exit, it can cause a lot of problems, especially for the investors because it can delay the e entire exit, right? And then also, uh, 
the exit valuation for as an investor, you, you care about your valuation or returns, how much you're getting, right? So how much uh, revenue growth is expected by the end of life? For example, like uh, let's say I invest mm-hmm. in a startup for five years. What is the revenue growth mm-hmm. I see over five years? Uh, what is the exit multiple we're looking at? How much cash uh, they're going to generate? Uh, is there any future rounds they're planning on raising, uh, for example, in year two? Uh, how mm-hmm. will that affect my, uh, you know, equity? Uh, there's a term called dilution, right? Uh, what is the mm-hmm. IRR? That what is the MOIC? Uh, th- those kind of things. I mean, we can jump into the jargons in an, uh, in another episode, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, investors care about how much returns they're planning on getting or how much they can get, and they want to know. Uh, the projections of the entrepreneur, like this is our revenue growth year on year or over a five-year horizon. So they can mm-hmm. calculate the returns. Uh, the investors can calculate the returns. Mm-hmm. Of course. I know that in terms of uh, either going for IPO or perhaps uh, selling to another company, there's definitely a discussion there about founders that are missionaries versus founders who are mercenaries um, for another episode perhaps. But in terms of returns, I think that many people tend to overlook that the investors have got investors of their own that they need to return to. So let's say a venture capital firm may be dependent on institutional investors who mm-hmm. say, hey, um, we're going to invest in your fund. That fund is going to have, let's say, a lifetime, a lifetime or life cycle of five to 10 years or something like that. And at the end of that time, their investors are hoping to see returns as well. And so um, VCs are in the middle and they have to manage those relationships. So it is not trivial to actually worry, um, of course, Hopefully not too much. They're, they're also focusing on solving real problems or at least enabling um, the solving of those real problems. But it's something that they have to keep in mind as well. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, I guess uh, it's a pretty comprehensive list for our audience uh, for, for this episode of uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can wrap up uh, for today. What do you think? Fantastic. I'm happy with that. Thanks, Charlie. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting discussion. Uh, for all our listeners, uh, thank you so much for sticking around with us. This has been Iterator. Uh, you can catch us on YouTube um, or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.